0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Pres. And if you have your Bibles here this morning, uh, we're actually, we've are actually we been go- going through a series through the book of James throughout the entire summer, and we're nearly closing in on the end uh, towards chapter 5. And today our passage comes from James chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 6. So again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up with me there. Otherwise, the verses will also be projected on the screens in front of you. And for those of you uh, worshiping here in person, if I could kindly ask you at this time, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's word. And I'll read this for us. James chapter four, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord here this morning. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word for us here this morning. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, if you've been with us throughout the summer as we've been going through and studying the book of James together, you'll notice that James has been so pastoral and so practical throughout this letter because if you've been with us every Sunday this summer, you'll notice that James has basically been asking us the same exact question every single week in every passage that we've been looking at. He's been asking, if you have true faith in Christ, if you have a personal relationship and you deeply know and have experienced Jesus' grace in your life, then what difference should that make in your life? How should your life be changed and transformed by this faith that you profess to have in Christ? That's the question that James has been repeatedly asking us every single week throughout this letter. And so far, as we've seen, James has shown us a lot of things, how, shape, how faith shapes and forms the, and in a, the way that we approach trials in life, the way that we approach temptation, how faith is supposed to change the way that you and I speak, the words that, we, that come out of our mouths. As last week, as Director Paul showed us, how faith is supposed to make you and me Rather than boastful and prideful, it's supposed to make us humble. But friends, here this morning in this passage that we looked at today and just read, today the question that James poses in this passage is not so much, how is faith supposed to change the way that you and I live our lives? But the question that he's asking this morning is, how is faith supposed to shape the way that you and I think about, view, and approach our lives? And see, the way that James does this is by asking us the question in verse 14 this morning, what is your life? What is your life? In the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of God's eternal plan of redemption and history and salvation, what is your life? What is its significance? What is its purpose? And how should you live your life in light of that? That's the question that James asks us here this morning in this passage. And so, brothers and sisters, as we study this passage here together this morning, there are three things that James teaches us about our lives here today that I want us to look at in this passage. First, James shows us the reality of our lives the blunt but true reality of our lives here this morning. And the second and third thing that we'll look at is what James points out to us, is two ways that we can approach our lives in response to that reality. And so again, the three things that we'll look at in this passage this morning is first, the reality of our lives, and then second and thirdly, the, a wrong approach, and then a right approach to live our lives in response to that reality. So let's begin with the first point this morning, the reality of life. Again, if you still have your Bibles with me, if you read verse 14, of this passage, James writes in verse 14 this What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And friends, here in this verse, James very bluntly, without sugarcoating it, he simply reminds you and me this morning of the reality that, friends, life is short. Life is really short, it's really fleeting, and it's really fragile. That in the grand scheme of things, the way that James describes our lives is like a mist or a vapor or a puff of smoke. That's here for a little while. A couple, a couple seconds later, you look back and it's gone. It disappeared. You know, last month the CDC posted a study describing how life expectancy in the U.S. it actually declined in just one year due to the pandemic. And in this study, in, CD, in the, the CDC study, it revealed that the average life expectancy for males in 2020 in the U.S. it dropped to 74 years from 76 years the previous year before. And for women in the United States in 2020, the average life expectancy declined from 82 years down to 80. And I'm not a doctor. I don't know why women live longer than men, but sisters, you get a couple more years to live on this earth than us brothers for some reason. But those are just the numbers from 2020, just a year ago. 74 years for men, 80 years for women, just on average. Now, brothers and sisters, just going off of these averages, if that's the case, that means that statistically all of us here in this room, for most of us besides you kids, We've already lived at least a quarter, or for some of us, over half of our entire lifetimes here on earth already. That's how much time has already passed. And friends, just think about that for a moment. For all the years that you've lived to up till now, whether you're 20 or you're 30 or you're 40 here today, you only get one, two, maybe three at best, more chunks of those years that you have already lived up till now in this life. That's how much time has passed. That's all you have left. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this this morning to bring about some sort of quarter-life or midlife crisis into your life or to make anyone feel depressed about their age here this morning. But friends, the reason I want to bring this up is because this is something that the Bible and that James and God wants us to think about more, but you and I, we tend not to. See, friends, when it comes to this reality that life is so short and so fragile and so frail, many of us try to either neglect it or we try not to think about it. And friends, instead, you and I, oftentimes, we tend to live each week and each day that we wake up as if life is just going to continue on the same way forever and ever and ever as it is right now. When friends, in reality, James tells us in this passage that our lives are like a fleeting mist, a puff of smoke, a vapor that's here one moment, and it's gone the next. And so friends, the question then this morning is, if that's the reality of our lives, then what perspective should that give you and me for how we view our lives and how We approach our lives here this morning as believers in Jesus. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he's the famous Baptist preacher. He once said this, that time is short, eternity is long. It is only reasonable then that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. Now, brothers and sisters, the reality is here this morning, compared to eternity, our lives here on earth, no matter how old you are here this morning, no matter how how much time you think you have to live on this earth, our lives are really short. And friends, one of the most fundamental things that the Bible teaches us is that how we live our lives here on earth right now, the way that you and I live our lives and operate each day, that is going to affect us not just a year from now or 10 or 20 years from now, but for all of eternity. Now, there's a very famous illustration that Francis Chan, a pastor in NorCal, he used in a sermon at Youth Valley several, several years ago. Many of you may be familiar with this illustration, but I think it really captures what James is saying here so well. And in this illustration, he grabs this really long rope. It's about 50 meters long, probably. And he tells his congregation, he takes it in his hands. He says, imagine that this rope in my hands just goes on forever and ever and ever in this direction. It's infinitely long. And he says that this rope, imagine that it represents a timeline of your existence, your entire existence, forever. For those of you who have seen Loki, this is the sacred timeline of your life. It's the sacred timeline. And he says, your time here on Earth is probably only going to be about one inch of that rope, the very beginning of the rope, and then the rope just keeps going on for eternity, forever and ever and ever. And what he says is that what blows me away is that some of you, all you think about and all that consumes your life is this part right here. All you care about is, I I wonder what I'm going to do here or here, what's going to happen here in my life? But the question is, friends, what about everything else here? What about the rest of the rope? Friends, that one section or sliver of that rope whatever your life may be in right now, it might seem so urgent to you, so important. It might seem really long, like that span of time that you're thinking about here. But friends, in the grand scheme of things, when you think about eternity and the rest of that rope, how urgent, how important, how long is that really? Now friends, as a sort of uh, icebreaker or get to know you question, one that I personally like a lot, a lot of times people ask in group settings when they're getting to know each other, If you knew that you only had 48 hours to live of your life, what would you do with those last 48 hours? Where would you go? What would you do? Now, friends, most people, when they think about this question, they often answer the question by saying, I would spend time with my family or my friends, my loved ones. I would talk to people or catch up with people that I haven't seen in a long time that I really care about. Basically, most people answer the question by saying, I would spend my last 48 hours doing what's most important to me with the people who are most important to me. Now, friends, the reason that I think that I personally like this question, I think it's such an effective and thought-provoking question is because of the perspective that it gives people. Because, see, friends, to, to most people, 48 hours its not a lot of time compared to your entire lifetime here on Earth. It's a really short time. And because of that, friends, when people are asked this question, what it does is it gives them perspective. It forces them to reevaluate their decisions, their thinkings, their thinking and their values and their priorities It gives them, in other words, a sense of urgency. And so, friends, if that's the case, then how is this question any different? Friends, if you knew that you only had 48, not hours, but if you knew that you only had 48 years, or 30 or 20 years to live, that's all you had left, which in light of eternity is not a long time at all, then, friends, what would you do with those last 48 years of your life, those last 30 or 20 years of your life, Brothers and sisters, that is the reality and the perspective that the Bible is forcing us to think about and remember here this morning, that in God's greater story and plan for all of history and redemption in the universe, that your lives and my life are this small fleeting mist in light of everything else. It's so short and fragile and fleeting. And friends, the thing is, no matter who you are here this morning, whether you're a believer here or you're not, all of us have to deal with this reality in life. Whether you're a Christian here or not, whether you're young or old, none of us can escape this reality that life is fleeting and short. And so, brothers and sisters, the question then is, how should our lives be shaped and informed by this reality? How should we approach life if this is true of all of us, even if we're Christians here today? And this brings us first to our second point. First, the wrong way that we can respond, the wrong way we can approach life. In the rest of this passage, James goes on to describe to us the wrong way that we can respond to this reality, that life is short and that life is fleeting. And what James tells us in this passage is that the two wrong responses that we can have are first, to live and operate by self-sufficiency, and secondly, we can live our lives and build our lives upon earthly treasure. Now, So first, self-sufficiency. If you read verses 13 and 14 again with me, James writes in verses 13 and 14, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Friends, in verses 13 and 14, what James is doing is, here is he is addressing believers in the church who are traveling merchants. And see, the thing is, back in James's day, if you were a traveling merchant, merchants would have to plan out their travels. They would have to plan out their itineraries almost an entire year in advance in order to make sure that they had time to make connections with people, business partners, and trade before they moved on to the next city or their next destination. That's how much planning it took. But friends, here's the thing. Just to be clear, James is not telling us that God is against planning or that God is against preparation or setting goals, that God is against preparing or doing business or making profit, because in fact, the Bible in many places actually commends those things in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. But friends, what James is saying is this, God is not against planning or calendaring or setting goals or making strategies, but friends, what God is against is doing all those things with an arrogant, self-sufficient attitude and mindset. As he says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, friends, what does it mean exactly to boast in your arrogance or boast in your self sufficiency? Well, brother and sister, self sufficiency is this self sufficiency is the mindset and the assumption that tomorrow is going to turn out a certain way, a way that I can picture in my mind. It's going to turn out a certain way because I can outplan it, I can outprepare or think it. Or I can even outpurchase it. In other words, self-sufficiency, brothers and sisters, it's the mindset and the assumption that you can control everything. It's the mindset and the assumption that because I plan this much, because I prepared so much, or I thought through every single detail scenario, because I put in so much work and preparation, or because I'm so competent and capable that I can dictate how tomorrow is going to turn out, how my life will turn out. In other words, friends, self-sufficiency is a mindset that at the end of the day, it fails to acknowledge the simple truth that God is in control and sovereign, and you and I are not. And friends, this morning, if you want to know whether in your own life you're like this, whether you operate by arrogance and self-sufficiency, here's a really simple test. Friends, just look at how you respond when the things that you plan fall through. Friends, what is the response of your heart when something that you plan or prepare for, it doesn't go the way that you planned? Is it inordinate frustration or inordinate anger? Because deep down in your heart of hearts, you really believe that you're sovereign and that you're in ultimate control of your life. Or, Friends, maybe, better yet, a better question might be, friends, how do you respond in your life when everything goes exactly the way you planned? How do you respond in life when things go exactly the way that you thought they would or planned or prepared? In other words, friends, is there ever an ounce of gratitude or thankfulness in your heart? When God makes your plan succeed? When He brings forth all the plans that you prepared in your life? Is there ever an ounce of gratitude? Or do you just carry on with the rest of your life, assuming that that's just the status quo? That's what's always supposed to happen. That as if your planning and your intellect and your ability were the things that made your plan succeed. And that's just how life, the way that life is supposed to go. Friends, according to James, those may be signs here this morning that your life is operating by arrogance and self sufficiency. And that's the first characteristic of this wrong approach to life. Now, friends, the second wrong response James says that you and I can have to this reality that life is short and fleeting and like a mist is that we can then build our lives upon earthly treasures. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, James uses the exact same phrase that he used to address these arrogant, self-sufficient merchants. And James says in verse 1 of chapter 5 this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, of the miseries that are coming upon you, now, friends. What James does here in verse one of chapter five is he gives this scalding rebuke and warning to people who are wealthy. In chapter in chapter five, verse one, now friends, right off the bat, just let me clarify a couple of things here. Now, first and foremost, friends, James is not pronouncing judgment on all wealthy people here in verse one, because in verses one through six of chapter five, what James is doing is he's specifically addressing. And describing, and talking about unbelieving, non-Christian, wealthy people of his day. Now friends, the reason that he's directly describing and talking about these people is because James knew that for his readers, the people that he was writing this letter to, many of them were not well off. He knew that it was so natural for them, deep down in their hearts, to envy these people, to envy the rich, to, to aspire to be like them, or to grow bitter because their lives weren't as great as theirs. James knew that, and because Because of that, what he's doing in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 is he's showing his readers just how dangerous it is is to be in the position that these rich, non-believing people are in, to, at the end of the day, have your entire life and the foundation of your life be centered and built upon earthly treasures and wealth. That's the first thing that James points out here. Now, friends, secondly, James is not condemning people here for being wealthy He's not condemning people or saying that it's sinful to be wealthy. But friends, what James is condemning people for in these verses is for what they do and what they don't do with their wealth. In other words, James is condemning people for living in a way that says and believes, because life is so short and it's so fleeting, what actually matters in life is just accumulating as much as I possibly can before it's all over. It's all about living the most comfortable, the most extravagant, the most self-indulgent lifestyle that I can possibly live because my time is short. I better live it up now while I can Now friends, according to James, the reason that this approach to life is so wrong and so sinful is because of what he says in verses 2 and 3. If you read verses 2 and 3 again with me, James writes this, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now friends, what James does in this verse is, He reminds us of the simple truth that, friends, just like our own lives, just like our own lives, that our finances, our possessions, the things that we own and have in this life, as great as they are, they too are like a mist, a mist that's here one moment, and it's gone the next. They're fleeting. And he says to build the foundation, then the center of your life, upon those things, James says, is one of the most irrational and foolish things that you could ever do. There's a very well-known story in one of John Piper's books that I think really captures this and drives this point home so well. And many of you, again, may be familiar with this, but in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he writes this, and it's a lengthier uh, passage, but just bear, bear with me as I read this. He writes this. I'll tell you what a tragedy is, and I'll tell you how you can waste your life. Consider a story from an edition of the Reader's Digest, which tells about a young couple who took early retirement at ages 59 and 51, and they're now living their dream. They live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot yacht, they play softball, and they collect seashells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a sort of spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the greatest work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this. I was successful. I lived and retired comfortably, and now I play softball and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see all the shells I collected for you. That is a tragedy. And the world around you is doing everything it possibly can to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Now, friends, what James reminds us of here in this passage this morning is that, friends, you and I, we only get one life here. We only get one life. And that life, he says, is short. So short compared to eternity. And friends, one of the worst ways that you could respond to that reality is to then build your life upon things that, just like your own life, are fleeting and are like a vapor in a mist that's here one moment, and it's gone the next. And friends, that is the first way that James says we can approach our lives. That's the first way that he points out we can respond to this reality, to live a life of self-sufficiency, to live a life built upon earthly treasures. And this brings us now to our second point. Friends, what, what then is the right way to respond to this reality? How should we live our lives and approach our lives? If you read verse 15 again with me, James, in this one verse in this passage, he describes to us the second approach to life, and he says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now friends, according to James, the right response to the brevity, the shortness, and the unpredictability of life, it all begins with those words, if the Lord wills, Lord willing. Now, friends, the reason that James is teaching us this is not for it to become a sort of, you know, cliche Christian catchphrase that we just say in our emails or two other, Lord willing this, Lord willing that. It's not some sort of magical formula that you, we have to recite before you and I plan anything or prepare anything for our lives. But, friends, What James is saying is that those words, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, friends, that those words need to be the posture and the attitude of your heart when you approach any and all areas of your life. Because, friends, if we're honest here this morning, all of us, we have areas in our lives, hopefully, we have areas in our lives that we have perfectly no problem, we are perfectly fine with surrendering to God's will. But see, at the very same time, all of us have areas in our lives that we don't really want God's input, We don't really want his opinion or his feedback, and we'd rather just do things our own way. And so, friends, if that's the case, then what does it mean to live this out, to live out if the Lord wills in our lives here this morning as believers? Well, friends, it means two things very briefly. First, it means humble dependence in how you and I plan, humble dependence in how we plan. And, friends, all that means is that when you and I make plans, that we plan in a way that recognizes that we are not in ultimate control. And that we acknowledge and recognize that everything that you and I plan is subject to the will of God. And perhaps no better verse in the Bible may capture this better than in what James says than Proverbs 16, verse 9. In Proverbs 16, verse 9, it tells us, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so, friends, in other words, humble dependence in how we plan, all that means is that when you and I make plans, but those plans don't work out or they fall through, Friends, it means that we humbly submit ourselves to God's rule and what he desires for our lives. But friends, it means that when our, do, our plans do succeed, it means that God receives all the credit because he is the one who establishes our steps. That is humble dependence in how we plan. Now friends, secondly, living this out, living out if the Lord wills for your life, it not only means humble dependence in how you and I think about, approach, or make plans, but it also means humble dependence in what you and I plan for our lives. Sam Alberry, in his commentary, he describes it this way, he says that humble dependence means that not just the contingency, but the content of our plans needs to reflect the sovereign rule of God. The 24 hours in the day are not mine to use as I please. God has given them to me, and I am to use them as he would want me to. And brothers and sisters, just think about that for a moment. What would your life look like if every day that you woke up, you woke up with that mindset, that instead of waking up and thinking, what can I do this day with my time, with my day, that instead you woke up every single day asking, what can I do with the time that is not mine, but the time that God has given me? This gift of time that God has gifted to me, what can I do with that? Friends, what would our lives look like if the thing driving all our plans, our busyness, and our schedules was no longer what mattered most to us, but what mattered most to God? James says, That is what a life of humble dependence is and what it looks like. And, brothers and sisters, there is no better picture, no clearer picture or example of what this actually looks like in a person's life every day than by looking at the life of Jesus. Because, friends, if you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was about to be betrayed and crucified, Jesus was in agony. Jesus was literally sweating blood from his skin. Because he was in so much agony as he was wrestling with his own will to live versus his Father's will for him to be crucified. And, friends, in that garden, Jesus ultimately submitted himself to the Father's will. Friends, Jesus trusted and followed the Father's will more than he trusted his own. And he humbly submitted himself. He perfectly displayed for you and me, friends, what it means to choose humble dependence over self sufficiency or self preservation. Brothers and sisters, this morning, the truly beautiful thing about this is that, friends, Jesus did not just live this way to be an example for you and me. Friends, he lived this way to save you and me. And friends, let me explain that. Let me wrap this up by just bringing this back full circle to this rope illustration that we talked about in the first point. Now, brothers and sisters, if our lives are like as James said, it's this vapor or mist, it's short, it's fleeting and temporary, then, friends, on this imaginary rope that is a timeline of our existence. Our lives would maybe be an inch or a centimeter on that rope, and the rope would just keep going on and on forever throughout all eternity. But friends, did you know that the rope also goes, not just in this direction, for all eternity? Friends, the rope also goes in the the other direction as well. Friends, that the Bible tells you that if you are in Christ here this morning, if you are a disciple and a follower of Christ, that friends, before even the beginning of time, before all of eternity was even formed, God had you in mind. He had this small inch of your rope, your existence, of your life in mind. And from all eternity, before the foundations of the world, on this side of eternity, God planned to send his son Jesus to become incarnate, to be born of a woman, to enter into your weakness and your finiteness, to live a life of humble dependence, eventually to submit himself in obedience, to be crucified on a cross for your sins and for my sins. The question is why? Why, from all eternity, did God plan and determine all this before the foundation of the world? Friends, was it so that you and I could live this self-sufficient lifestyle or spend our entire existence on earth building up for ourselves earthly treasure and kingdoms? No, friends. The reason that God planned from all eternity to send Jesus to die for you was, friends, so that you could spend that first inch of your life's existence here on earth preparing for the eternity that he has purchased and won for you through his own blood, his death, and his resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, as we come to a close, in the words again of Charles Spurgeon, friends, as people whose lives on earth are so short and so fleeting, but who have been given an eternal hope, friends, let us then live our lives, our short lives here on earth, in light of this eternity that God has won for us through Jesus and his death and resurrection. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning, Lord, for your word, which reminds us of the reality that oftentimes, Lord, we don't want to think about, God, that our lives are short, that our lives are so fragile, and God, that you hold all things in your hands, Lord, that there is not an ounce of our lives or an inch of our lives, Lord, that we are in sovereign and perfect control over. Lord, we thank you that you remind us, Lord, that we do not have to always live a life trying to just control everything in our lives. Lord, that we can live a life that looks not just to the good things that you have created in this world, but Lord, we can live lives here on earth with hope pointing us to the eternal salvation, the eternal inheritance and hope and joy that Christ has won for us through his gospel. And so, Lord, we pray for all of us here this morning that you would help us live our lives, Lord, sober-mindedly, reminded, Lord, of our finiteness, of our weakness, our frailty, and our finitude. Lord, that you would also remind us each day of the great hope and expectation that we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you and pray all this in his name.